got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to the book of Psalms. This morning we are going to be as a standalone sermon. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 3, the third psalm. A few years ago, I determined that on some standalone Sundays in between various sermon series, I would begin to preach through the book of Psalms. We haven't covered a whole lot of sermon series. <laughs> we're in Psalm 3. Uh, but nevertheless, we will continue. In this psalm, uh, we find King David surrounded by enemies, overwhelmed, outgunned, overmatched, as if all of life is closing in on him, the walls of life caving in on him. And in King David, in this condition, we identify with him. Some of you may be able to identify with him now, what's going on in your life now, overwhelmed. Seems like the walls of your life are caving in, you're surrounded by your enemies. Let us learn from David how he responds to that situation. Psalm 3, this is the word of God. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for this precious book. And in particular this morning, Father, we thank you for this treasury in the Psalms. The songbook of the nation of Israel. And we thank you for your servant David through whom you breathed out these words. We ask for your Spirit, Father, to give us not only an understanding of what this means to us, but how we should apply it to our lives. And we ask in faith that you would cause us to bear spiritual fruit for you and your kingdom and for your glory as a result of how you change us through this. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we notice about Psalm 3 is that it's got a title to it. This is the first of the Psalms that has this kind of superscription before the actual verses begin. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is actually part of the original manuscripts. That's not always the case when we see headings like this. If you look at, at Psalm 1... In my Bible, at least, in my translation, before Psalm 1, it says, Book 1, 
And then it says, the way of the righteous and the wicked. I don't know if yours says that or not, but that's not part of the original scriptures. But this superscript here under Psalm 3 is in all caps, which the translators of of my Bible, the ESV, the English Standard Version, note that when they use all caps, that is to signify to us that that was part of the original manuscripts. And so in this superscript, in this title, we are told three things. First of all, we're told that it's a song. This is the first psalm that's titled a psalm. In fact, that's the first time we see that word in the book of Psalms. Perhaps the book itself is named for Psalm 3 and how it is titled. The word literally means a song. Poetry that is put to a melody melody and has music with it. So it's a song. Secondly, it tells us that the author is David. It's a psalm of David. He wrote it. It's about something that happened in his life. And then thirdly, it gives us the occasion of this writing when he fled from Absalom, his son. So to really understand this psalm, we need to understand what was happening in the context of David's life when he wrote this. We find the story of that in the book of 2 Samuel, in chapters 14, 15, 16 through chapter 18. In the aftermath of David's infamous sin with Bathsheba, his family began to fall apart at the seams. Ridden through with sin and all sorts of dysfunction. And at one point, his son, Absalom, gathers a large following around him and begins to march on Jerusalem in order to oust his father, King David, from the throne. As a result, David must flee. He must flee or face a bloody battle on the streets of Jerusalem. And so he flees into the wilderness and his son Absalom and his army of many thousands, as we read, pursues after him. This is the context in which David writes Psalm 3. Psalm 3 can be be divided into four sections, each with two verses. The first two verses is David's complaint, his condition, what's happening to him. In verses 3 and 4, we see then David express his conviction of who God is to him. In verses 5 and 6, we see David's response to who God is. And then he closes in verses 7 and 8 with his petition and prayer. So in verses 1 and 2, David says, I'm surrounded by my foes. I'm surrounded by many enemies. The word many is repeated three times in those first two verses. David's telling us something, that there are many enemies surrounding him. David's enemy is Absalom, but there are many with him. This huge army of soldiers Many thousands that have set out from Jerusalem to find David and to dethrone him. David says they are rising up against him. Which tells us that in this moment, David feels low. And he feels small compared to his enemies who are rising up against him. 
And he also says that his enemies say something to him, and they say it to his soul, which to me means they're just, it's, it's a message that's getting in. These enemies are saying something to his soul, and the message that they say to him is there is no salvation for him in God. This is a picture of David, overwhelmed, outmatched, a multitude of enemies arrayed against him, many enemies. He's surrounded. They're rising against him, and they're saying to his soul, there is no salvation for you in God. Now, how are we to interpret this? I think we have a couple of different planes on which to run our interpretation of a psalm like this. First, there is the temporal, personal plane. And we feel it, right? David's overwhelmed. He is exhausted He's at his wit's end. It seems like all of life is crashing in, that the walls of life are caving in on him. He's surrounded by enemies, those who intend to do him in. And on this personal plane, we can identify with him. Have you ever felt like this? Overwhelmed, exhausted, outgunned, outmatched, You feel surrounded by the enemies of life, like the walls of your life are crashing in. Have you ever felt like that? We all have. I have. David's enemy was Absalom, enraged with blind vengeance and jealousy, with a laser focus on dethroning his father. And with Absalom is many thousands of soldiers along with him. Who is our enemy? We have a multitude of enemies as well. Sin, Satan, and the fallen world in which we live. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the destruction that sin has caused in our life. He says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin causes death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what does Paul say in Romans 8, 13 about living according to the flesh? He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Sin always and eventually leads to death. It is our enemy that is seeking to destroy us. But our enemy is also Satan. Listen to what Peter said in his first epistle. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is our enemy, 
the great deceiver. And though he sometimes masquerades as an angel of light, he is intent on destroying us and killing us because we're made in the image of God and he intends to rob God of all the glory he possibly can. So our great deceiver intends to destroy us and kill us and trip us up. But thirdly, our enemy is the fallen world around us that is stained and held captive by the power of sin and the fall of man. That's our enemy as well. Listen to the Apostle John in his first epistle, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and we don't have to guess because he tells us, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this fallen world around us, likewise, is our enemy. But you might say, well, wait a second. Didn't Jesus say in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world? Yes, he did. In John's epistle here, He's referring to the world system, the fallen system around us, our our culture, our, our society that is stained irreparably by the fall of man and is constantly ever pulling us into its grip. In his gospel, John is referring to, or actually Jesus is referring to, when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's referring to people, those made in God's image. There's a difference. There's a difference. And this fallen world around us, make no mistake, it is our enemy. And we are not to fall under its grip. But we have these enemies in this life. And and as we journey in this fallen world, there are times, there will be, perhaps there have been, perhaps there is a time right now where we feel surrounded by these enemies. We find ourselves in a very similar place that David found himself in when he wrote this psalm. We feel overwhelmed. There's too many of them. They're too strong. I can't do this. I'm overmatched. And by the way, the strategy employed by David's enemy here is to lie to him. It says in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It was a lie. And what a dreadful lie that is. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says of this. He says, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. What a dreadful thought that is. To be lied to and to be tempted to fall into the grip of that deception that there is no help for us in God. That was the lie from David's enemy. Our enemies lie to us as well, do they not? Sin promises delight without consequences. Just like the Turkish delight that Edmund fell in love with. It it, it promises delight. 
without consequences, but in the end, it kills. Satan whispers to us in the dark of the night, we are too sinful to be forgiven. That we're too far God. God cannot love something as unlovable as you. He lies. The world tells us that there is no God. And if there is, he's small and he's weak. Or that he doesn't love us. These enemies that surround us often attempt to demoralize us by causing us to question God's ability or God's character just as David's enemy did with him. And so we find ourselves on this temporal, personal plane identifying with David in this condition of being overwhelmed by enemies and just life in general. But there's a second plane on which we must run our interpretation. For this psalm, as well as other psalms that we find in this book. And that is the eternal redemptive plane. What do I I mean by that? Well, for centuries the Israelites would have read the book of Psalms. And would have read Psalm 3 and sung Psalm 3. And and they they would also identify with David's predicament. They would see their enemies surrounding them and they would say, yes, I know what it feels like to feel overwhelmed and outmatched and outgunned. But sometime later, during the period of the exile, when they're in exile in Babylon, a remnant of Israel, a faithful remnant, would have begun to see something else in these kind of psalms of lament. See, during the exile, the nation of Israel had been utterly defeated and they had lost all temporal hope. Their country had been demolished. Their national identity had been dashed. The temple lay in ruins and they were a conquered people in a foreign land. And they would begin to wonder if God had forgotten them. But that remnant, that faithful remnant, the the true Israel, the Israel that was Israel not just by birth but by faith, would have remembered the promises to Abraham that we just finished studying in our study of Genesis. Promises not just of offspring of land, but a promise that through this nation of Israel, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And they would recognize as they are are in exile that this is yet to be fulfilled. It hasn't happened yet. And they would see the, the promise of their father Abraham as an extension of the curse on the serpent that we looked at in Genesis chapter 3 in our summary last week. This promise that there was coming one from the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death for God's people forever. And then these Israelites in exile would remember that this promise of a redeemer would later be linked to a promise of a king that would come from the the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. 
a forever king who would reign in a forever kingdom. But they knew that this couldn't be referring to King David because King David had lived and died at this point. He was long gone. And so they knew that this was pointing, this faithful remnant would know that this was pointing to another king that was coming, a rescuer, a a redeemer who would fulfill these promises, a, a king who would come first as a suffering servant as they learned through the prophets, but yet again as a conquering king. And so when these Israelites in exile would read a psalm like this, They would see David, and on a temporal, personal plane, they, like us, would identify with David and and say, yes, I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed and outmanned and outgunned and surrounded and like the walls are caving in. I know what it feels like. But on an eternal, redemptive plane, they would see a promise of a Messiah. And we as well see here a prefiguring of Christ. In fact, every time we see David in the scriptures, we can and should look at that passage through the lens of the New Testament and through the lens of the gospel, the promise of a coming king. And so on this plane, when we see David surrounded by his enemies, we would do well to be reminded when Jesus was surrounded by his enemies as well when the betrayer came in the dark of the night with a host and a legion of soldiers to take him away in custody and then later when the crowds in Jerusalem would cry out for the release of a true criminal but of Jesus they would say crucify him crucify him and then later as Jesus hung on the cross with the soldiers and other enemies surrounding him. These two planes, the temporal personal plane and the eternal redemptive plane, intersect when we recall what the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. As Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say of his enemies? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friend, the reality is Jesus knows what it feels like to feel overwhelmed, and he knows what it feels like to feel overmatched, and like the walls of life are caving in. But the difference was that Jesus wasn't overwhelmed and Jesus wasn't outmatched. And because of what Christ has done for us, neither are we because of grace through faith in Christ alone. So David's complaint in verses 1 and 2 gives way now to David's conviction about his God in verses 3 and 4. Listen to what David says about his God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. First note here that David refers to his God as Lord. That word in your English Bibles is going to be in all capital letters. 
That tells us that this is the personal name of God. The name that God gave to himself when he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. The great I am. Bible scholars call this name, Lord, as it's written in our Bibles, the Tetragrammaton in Latin, the four letters. Y-H-V-H, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. The, the, the Hebrews, when they, when they first penned God's word in ancient Hebrew, ancient Hebrew has no vowels. Imagine trying to speak the English language without vowels. The written language had no vowels. And, and so when they came back later and realized after the exile, how do we read this stuff? They added vowel pointing. They added little dots and dashes and curves to the consonants so that they would know how to pronounce those words. But when they came to this name, the great name of the I am, the Y-H-V-H, they considered that so holy that they weren't going to add vowel pointing to that because that is too holy to pronounce, they considered. This is the God that David addresses here. But you, O Lord, he says three things about this Yahweh, this Jehovah God. You're a shield about me. You are my glory, and you are the lifter of my head. In referring to Yahweh as a shield, David is saying that Yahweh is his defense. That's what you use a shield for, defending against attack. David says, when I'm surrounded by my enemies, I have a defense. And it is not me and it's not my armor. I have a shield and it's Yahweh. He is my defense. He defends me. And he is my glory. The the glory of royal King David had been utterly demolished at this point. We read back in 2 Samuel that when he flees out of Jerusalem, out of to try to escape from the approaching Absalom and his army, that David flees out of Jerusalem in shame. He he puts a, a cover over his head, and he's weeping. This is King David, utterly demolished. The royalty of David has been dashed. And here he is, in humility and shame, hiding from his son. And yet David says, he is my glory. Yahweh is my glory. He's focused on God's glory, not his own. And then he says, Yahweh is the lifter of my head. When I am down, when I am overwhelmed by sadness and dejection, Yahweh lifts my head. He lifts my countenance and restores my soul. When we feel overwhelmed, outgunned, outmatched by our enemies, sin, Satan, and the fallen world around us, like the walls are caving in around us, church, what we believe about God makes all the difference. If we believe that He is small and weak, and not sovereign, the fact that he is our shield is of no comfort to us. But if we believe that he is the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign creator God, then what a great comfort 
What a great comfort to know that our defense is him and that he is our shield. Then we will not be derailed by sufferings and weaknesses. Instead, we will, as Paul later told the church in Corinth, we will glory in our weaknesses because in our weaknesses he is made strong. And to know that this God is our shield and he is our glory, to know that this God lifts our countenance, lifts our head, restores our joy as we consider the joy of sharing in the sufferings of Christ for his glory. And then look at verse 4 again. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David cries aloud to the Lord. I find that significant and a comfort. He cries aloud to the Lord. He is surrounded by enemies who wish to do him in. He is overwhelmed, outmatched, outgunned. And he doesn't crawl into his prayer closet and whisper a prayer request to God. Aloud to the Lord. With his men standing around probably wondering what in the world is happening to David. Friend, there is a time for crawling into our prayer closet and whispering a prayer to God. But there is also a time for just crying out to the Lord with no concern for decorum or propriety. Lord, I need you. I can't do this alone. God, help me. Help me. Help me. Have you ever been there? I have. And what does David say? He answered me from his holy hill. Selah. We see that word selah three times in this psalm. We don't know exactly what it means, but Bible scholars tell us that it has something to do with how the music is arranged around these lyrics. As if something has to happen here. At this point that's just been made. As if perhaps it's, a, it's to lead to a crescendo in the music. Highlighting what has just been spoken. Or perhaps a pause in the music. To consider deeply and profoundly the lyrics that have just been said. If Selah means either of those two things, which I think it does, what a wonderful place for a Selah here. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. Selah. God heard David's cry. Who was David? A sinner. An adulterer, a murderer, God heard his cry. Friend, God hears us when we pray, when we cry out to him, when we speak to him. He hears us. Again, Charles Spurgeon says of this, I love this, answers to prayer are sweet cordials to the soul. 
We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Wow. So having sung now about his conviction regarding who God is, David now responds in the third section with a faithful confidence in this God. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Note that the enemies are still marching on him. They're still, these these many thousands of soldiers are gathering against him in the night. And yet David is able to sleep peacefully and rest. I lay down and slept. His trust is in Yahweh. He is not overcome by anxiety and fear and dread, though the situation hasn't changed in the least. It's because he trusts in Yahweh. Whatever God intends, he trusts in him. Yahweh is his shield, his his glory, the, the lifter of his head, the one who hears him when he cries out to him. And what I want us to see here is that verses 5 and 6 don't happen without verses 3 and 4. If David doesn't believe that Yahweh is his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head, and that he is those things because of his omnipotence and sovereignty and unmatched glory, if he doesn't believe those things, then he's not going to sleep soundly as many thousands gather against him in the night. David's focus is on God, on Yahweh. That's what fills his heart, his mind, his soul. And because his focus is on God, his enemies seem small. Church, if our focus is on our problems, our situations, our circumstances of being overwhelmed, our enemies gathered around us, if that is what our focus is, our God will seem small. But if our focus is the God, the God of the Bible, this all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign creator God who is unmatched in glory, then our enemies and our problems will seem small. So first we had David's complaint that there are enemies all around and they're lying to me and they're rising up against me. And then we had David's conviction that God was his shield, his glory, the lifter of his head, the one who hears him when he... And then we had David's response that in light of what he knew to be true about God, he could sleep like a baby and not give in to the fear of circumstances. And now, in the last section, David petitions the king and praises the king. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Those two words are imperative verbs. They are commands. David is commanding something of God. He's commanding God to act in a manner that is consistent with his character and his promises. Arise and save me, O God, for I am yours. 
His only hope is in God. Not his armor, not his ability, not in the few friends that stuck by him in the wilderness, but in Yahweh. But his confidence in this God is so strong that he suggests that he need merely to arise and it would be done. Arise, my Lord. Save me, oh my God. David's faith in the power of God is strong. And then David likens his enemies to wild beasts. Verse 7 continues, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. This continues the hunting metaphor that we saw in the previous verse. At the end of verse 6 when he talked about many thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. The picture there is of a hunting party surrounding its quarry set to ambush it. But here in verse 7, we learn that the hunting party is actually a pack of ravenous carnivores ready to pounce on their prey and devour their prey with their teeth. And yet the Lord breaks their jaw, knocks out their teeth, rendering these carnivores toothless. Friend, this is what God has done for us in Christ with our enemies. That roaring lion that Peter referred to in his first epistle, that roaring lion that's prowling around looking for whom he may devour with his teeth, Jesus has kicked his teeth out. He is a toothless carnivore. He is a defeated foe, our enemy is. He can't hurt you anymore. This is part of what I think Jesus meant when he says it is finished. Everything that must be done in order to defeat our enemy's sin and death has been done. And it may still feel like he has power in this world. It may still feel like our enemies have power in this world, but they are defeated foes. All of our enemies are including our vilest enemy, sin. What does Paul say in Romans 8, the first two verses? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's a defeated foe. And any power that our enemies hold in this world, they hold but for a time. And their power is limited within the boundary of God's sovereignty. But they are already defeated, and their end is sure and nearing. And so David concludes in verse 8 by praising God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And again, Selah. Salvation not only comes from the Lord, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here we have this strong Old Testament affirmation that our God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Once again, listen to the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says this verse contains the sum and substance of Calvinistic doctrine. Search Scripture through 
And you must, if you read it with a candid mind, be persuaded that the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is the great doctrine of the Word of God. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. This is a point concerning which we are daily fighting, he says. Our opponents say salvation belongeth to the free will of man. If not to man's merit, at least to man's will. But we hold and teach that salvation from first to last, in every iota of it, belongs to the Most High God. It is God who chooses His people. He calls them by His grace. He quickens them by His Spirit and keeps them by His power. It is not of man, neither by man. Not of man that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. May we all learn this truth experientially, for our proud flesh and blood will never permit us to learn it any other way. Unquote. Let us rejoice, church, that salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. And in humility, because we're worms, in humility, may we bow before him and thank him that he has extended that mercy and grace to sinners like you and I. Well, what do we do with a psalm like this third psalm? What application can we bring to our lives? Let me just offer to you in closing five applications to this passage. First of all, be aware of your enemy's position, your enemy's presence, and your enemy's strategy. It's a good thing, right? It's a, it's a good thing that David was aware of Absalom's presence and of the approaching army. I don't know how he was aware, but he was aware. It's a good thing. It is not good to be unaware of our enemy's presence and our enemy's strategy. It is a spiritual reality that we do have enemies who are seeking to dissuade us from fidelity to God's will and God's plan. And just as with David, we know our enemy's strategy is often to lie to us, to tell our lies that we are, us lies that we are susceptible to believe, to demoralize us by causing us to question God's character and God's promises. It's as old as the garden. So be aware of your enemy's presence and their strategy. But secondly, in light of that, be assured of who God is and what that means for you. Be assured of who God is. Church, if your problems and your enemies seem larger to you than God, then your God is too small. And so may I humbly exhort you to dive back into the Word of God and encounter again the God of the Bible who is omnipotent, all-knowing, and unmatched in power and might and glory. Get to know him again. And then you will see your enemies in a true light. Thirdly, be reminded that God hears you when you cry out to him. God hears you when you pray. What an incredible blessing God has given to us in this. This is part of what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross and rose again three days later. He granted access to those who come to him by faith to enter into the throne room of God to speak to this omnipotent, sovereign creator God, and he hears us. 
Church, may we take advantage of that and speak with our God. For he hears us and he answers us from his holy hill. Selah. Selah. Fourth, rest in the confidence that God is in control. When I hear David say in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I'm, I'm reminded of Paul's exhortation to the, to the believers in Philippi, in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, when he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice the order. First there is prayer, crying out to God. And then there is peace. A peace that surpasses comprehension. A peace that doesn't make sense given the circumstances. You're surrounded by enemies. The walls are caving in and yet you have peace. Like David with tens of thousands surrounding him. And he lay down and he slept and he awoke in the morning. That kind of peace is only possible when we trust in the sovereignty of God. This is a peace not that Everything is going to work out exactly as I hope it will. Because we're not promised that. But it's a peace that God is in control. And that everything will happen and work out exactly as he intends it to. And he works everything out for our good and his glory. And then fifth and finally, be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. First, we must ask, what is it that we need salvation from? What what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved not simply and not, not just from hard times in life where we feel overwhelmed, where we feel like the walls are caving in on us. That's just on this temporal, personal level. But on an eternal, redemptive level, we need to be saved from something much, much, much more dire. We need to be saved from the judgment that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against a holy God. We could defeat all, all of our temporal enemies in this temporal world. But unless our greatest enemies, sin and death, are dealt with, we are doomed to a Christless eternity in hell. That is what we must be saved from. That's what we need salvation from. And David says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation from sin's penalty cannot be achieved by our works or simply our will. Salvation can only be granted and received. It is granted and offered in the gospel. And it is received by grace through faith in Christ alone. So if you need to be rescued... From the judgment of sin that you deserve to pay this morning. Then your cry to God as we close is, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Trust in Christ alone. But if God has saved you by grace through faith in Christ alone, then a reminder that salvation belongs to the Lord is a call to bow the knee before this God. And in humility, thank him for his amazing grace in showing mercy to a sinner like us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word.
Thank you for this song that as David was overwhelmed and outmatched and outgunned in the wilderness, he penned these words and you preserve them throughout the ages and you intend them for our encouragement, our challenge, and our exhortation. Father, we pray that our perspective of you is much grander and larger having seen how David sees you may we see you as our shield our glory and the lifter of our head may we see you as the one who hears us when we cry aloud and answers us from your holy hill father may we trust that you are in control And you're working everything out for our good, the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose and for your glory. Father, for those who have not trusted in Christ, we pray that right now, in the quietness of their heart, that they would not trust in their own ability to perform for you, to try to achieve a level of righteousness through which you will accept them. But they will throw aside their efforts, their merit, their good, all of that, as in the dung heap, and trust in Christ alone, your Son, who came and lived the perfect life and achieved a righteousness we never could, and died in our place on a cross to rescue us from what we deserve. May you give that person the faith to trust in Christ alone. To cry aloud to the Lord Jesus, arise my Lord. Save me, oh my God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.